0: day and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, my guest on today's podcast is Andy Zaltzman. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, thanks for uh, downloading it and having a listen. Uh, basically, we put out 12 episodes last year and uh, it wasn't a lot. <laughs> One a month. We're trying to do them weekly this year. At the moment, we're doing them uh, a couple a week. Uh, that's because the Melbourne International Comedy Festival is in town, and Despite the fact that this is uh, my busiest time of the year, it is also a time of the year where I can only get access to some of these people. So I've been trying to get as many of them in as possible. Uh, We're not going to get through all the episodes while the performers are in town doing their shows. And I hate that, particularly as a comedian, Uh, you know, you give up your time during the festival and... uh, the thing that you've recorded doesn't come out when the festival's on in aid to buy tickets so uh, here's what I'm going to tell you there is five days left of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival I have five shows left of Will Eagle tonight is sold out uh, Thursday night pretty much sold out already uh, so really only tickets to Friday, Saturday and Sunday Uh, This is my favorite ever show that I have brought to the festival in the last 22 years and uh, this is your last chance to see it. So if you want to come and see it, uh, three more shows, Friday, Saturday, Sunday are the ones that you can catch for that. But you've got to get in quick because I think it's all going to sell out, which is fantastic. Thank you to everybody for their support uh andy zaltzman is also performing until the end of the festival my next guest will be deanne smith she is performing until the end of the festival after that i'm going to have uh, jason byrne and kitty flanagan on the show uh, both excellent excellent uh, interviews as well uh, the deanne one i love the kitty one i love the jason one i loved i think you're going to love them all uh, but they are all doing shows until the end of the festival and some of them are doing shows around the rest of the country so please check out Their social medias, Uh, you will not hear the episodes uh, until the festival is finished, but you might be able to catch them somewhere else. Uh, But if you're hearing this before the festival is finished, go and check out their shows because they've been generous enough enough to come along and record a podcast for me. If you like the podcast, uh, the best way to help it keep going uh, weekly yeah, well, the reason it's coming out weekly is I now have Mike on board, uh, podcast Mike, young enthusiastic podcast Mike, who's been arranging all the interviews and you know uh, uh, coordinating everybody's schedules and making sure that all these interviews can be done and posted and all those sort of things. And of course, Mike Hal, our US-based uh, audio producer, who uh, weaves them all together. Uh, we pay those guys, and of course, we pay uh, James Fosdyke, who does the art, the individual art for every episode. So uh, there's you know there's kind of I guess, overheads of, you know, four or $500 an episode. And um, so if you would like the podcast to continue, uh, it is helpful for you to contribute to that. You don't have to, of course, but um, if you would like to, uh, we have a Patreon page. It's called patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P. It's for all our podcasts under the TOFOP banner. TOFOP, FOFOP, uh, We'll also be Two Guys, One Cup and anything else that Charlie and I might do under that sort of banner. But you, if you contribute there, you help uh, keep all those podcast going and there'll be a heap of bonus content and at some stage we'll put in a philosophy level of some kind uh, with specific philosophy content. But at the moment, uh, we're just trying to get the podcast out weekly. So if you're enjoying that, if you're enjoying the little deluge of them, uh, then if you could sign up to Patreon and give us some regular support, it just means that we know there's a little bit of money there to pay the Michaels uh, every week on the podcast. All right, I'm not going to muck around too much. Uh, enjoy this episode with Andy. It was a great pleasure to sit down with him. I'm such a fan of his political commentary I'm such a fan of his uh, cricket commentary so we talk about both of those things and we talk about, about a bunch of other interesting things in between so here he is the great man himself and his Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the podcast starts. Uh, Who are you?
1: I am Andy Zaltzman. I am a uh, 43-year-old alleged comedian from London, currently in Melbourne for the uh, Comedy Festival, uh, with a a new show that, on the evidence of the first night's performance last night, could be about two and a half hours long, uh, (laughs) if I did all the bits I was intending to do. And probably ought to be about forty minutes long.
0: (laughs) So, Uh, tell me that. I mean, because I love that, by the way. So, is this the brand new show? As in, first time you've done the brand new show? Yes,
1: it was the world premiere last night. uh, And um, yes, it's promising. I guess it was. uh, You know Uh, how?
0: How do you know? So, I'm a person who oscillates between writing things down and often developing things on stage, and then at some stage writing it down so that I can then you know make it better and you know work out what it's about but uh this one show that I'm doing this time uh is about something real and there were certain you know story beats in the story that I kind of had to tell at different times so there was a lot of writing that went into it and there was just a point where I just had no idea how long it was you know like I I was like I guess this is like is this it's meant to be 70 minutes I think this is about 70 minutes it turns out it was about three and a half hours
1: so yeah yeah, um, bullet points are very hard to time. Essentially, so I, I m- my approach is probably quite similar to that. It's a, a mixture of you know stuff I've written word for word and stuff that I've you know will just have a note and have worked it out at, at gigs and uh, it you know will expand or contract just depending on audience response. And um, yeah, I've, uh, I don't really have an internal clock.
0: Um, is is that how it's expanding and retracting? Like you know, is it? That thing of I sometimes say this to people which is like come on the first night. That night you get to see what I thought the show was. <laughs> you know, from yeah. then on we're essentially doing audience screenings night by night and I'm giving yeah. myself network notes.
1: Uh, yes. I guess well the audience on the I find the first couple of nights of a show is more of a focus group than uh Right. Than an than an audience. <laughs> um yeah, so it's... Uh, well, I try, try and Harry stick pins and things and see bit, which bits scream, I guess.
0: <laughs> uh, when you're... Uh, we were just having a little brief conversation off air about, uh, you know, the nature of... Uh, was I talking about the cricket in the show? Yeah. You know, we're both, uh, you know, massive cricket fans and I was uh, complimenting you on your uh, uh, Unbelievable Ashes podcast that you do with Felicity Ward, who uh, has been on this podcast previously. Yeah. And, um, but we were talking about the fact that it seems like a very... Yeah, it's like a it's like a Netflix series now. It's like yes. a quaint HBO <laughs> documentary about a certain more innocent time than yeah. the one we live in now.
1: Yes, I guess, yes, before Sandpaper and after Sandpaper, it seems to be the the history of cricket now. Certainly uh, the
0: history of cricket in Australia. Yeah.
1: Uh, yes, it, it was a strange... I mean, The Ashes was kind of oddly disappointing on many levels, particularly... As an England, I mean, it, it, the cricket wasn't that good, and England got rightly thrashed. Um, so it was a bit of a challenge doing a comedy series through that when there wasn't, uh, it wouldn't have quite the uh, visceral drama of the last time England were richly humiliated uh, here. But yeah, the um, I found the uh, the ball tampering story as a cricket fan, you know, quite uh, obviously a bit quite upsetting, a bit depressing, um, but the sort of political and commercial reaction to it uh, was an absolute Vesuvius of hypocrisy. And so I've built a, a bit in the show around around that and the the, the moral boundaries that we set for, for cricket in particular that are just flatly ignored in politics and, and business. It
0: interests me though, Andy, and, and maybe I'm uh, getting this wrong, but I think that... The fact that cricket is held to a higher standard than you know politics and these sort of things. I mean, you're a person who has you know made comedy about politics, but a lot of the time, you know, you're not a, you don't feel as let down by a politician lying to you as you do to you know cricketers yes. who are behaving in this. Well, way. Um, this is I I'm... mean, the reaction has yeah. been more, but also. I do feel more let down yes. by the cricketers because I have higher expectations of them than I do our politicians.
1: Yes, and I guess I mean part of that openness I mean, one of the reasons people love sport is you know it is that escape from the hideous realities of reality. So <laughs> and also you think you know sport is basically just pretend. So you ought to be able to construct a, a moral universe within that because it doesn't really matter. And so when that is fractured then yeah people do feel more let down than in uh, the sort of murky world of politics.
0: When I've um, t- uh, spoken to people about my love of sport, and particularly cricket, I think is the one that you know comes to mind. In this, is that you know it is that sense of that life itself is unexplainable. Yeah. So <laughs> we have chosen something <laughs> yeah. that you know is a microcosm of life, but we've given it a set of rules and values within which there is still levels of interpretation and weirdness and quirkiness, so that it does indeed reflect you know this broader planet but it's got these constrictions in place that we obey and we you know it's manageable
1: yes it- well i guess i guess in some ways it, it is almost like the sort of ultimate kind of tv box set that's been going on since well in international cricket since 1877 so um uh yes it is I, I guess it's sort of constantly evolving self-contained alternate universe almost I, uh,
0: I think one of the things that's interesting to me about cricket and I would love your opinion on this is, you know, uh, my friend Justin Hamilton often uh, describes it as physical chess. And if you really want to understand cricket, you know, like so many games move so quickly that you don't have time to, you know, introduce this element of, you know, the mind games between the teams, which is, you know, a lot of, you know, the idea of, you know, those famous things of like when, you know, uh, Darren, Cullen d- uh, d- uh, Cullinan used to come out the bat, and I'd uh, throw yeah, the yeah. ball to Shane Warren, and it was already—you d- knew what was happening before it happened. Yeah, that's the the mental part of the game. You know, yes. the, the bit where it's as much about playing your opponent as you would in a, a chess match, than actually just playing the game itself. And I think that's why this propensity for these things to become more than what they are—you know—outside the boundaries of the game itself. Yeah. Come from that, that is actually part of the game itself,
1: yes. That the, the sort of stewing time, I guess, the mm. uh, that you have, I guess, as a player. I mean, within international cricket, you, talk about, you know, Darryl Cullen and I think you know, Shane Warne and the whole of England from that single ball in 1993 took 12, you know, 15 years to get over it, and he only got over it when he retired. Right. So, um, you know, there's just that, yeah, those elongated narratives that you get, and I think that's why. I've never. I can't take to twenty twenty for all its excitement and its skill because it just doesn't have that time for endless reflection and the idea that you know players can stew on something for days within a game and weeks within a series and years within a career.
0: Uh, Do you have a philosophy towards something? That's the the loose premise of this podcast is that if you have a particular and it doesn't have to be. I mean, you know, a philosophy. uh, you know, a thought, a mantra, a you know, ideal by which you you know pursue something in your life. Is there something that fits into that category? Um, I'm not sure. Something. I'm
1: not sure. There's a full Zoltzmanic philosophy that's been yet uh, <laughs> that I've yet fully discovered within myself. I, I guess in in terms of a, a you know, a sort of formal philosophy. Um, I think I'm essentially a Stoic, uh, and I I did a radio series in Britain last year about looking at ancient philosophies and trying to sort of live my life according to their teachings. And and ancient Roman Stoicism sort of accidentally fitted into my general attitude towards life. So I guess not getting
0: too... Uh, no, well, too let, let's pause on right. that for a second, yeah. because... Uh, Surprisingly, you're actually not the first person who's put right. that yeah, forward yeah. on this podcast. So well, it's probably quite good for well, comedians. I so guess you need to well, let the... the the last person who said it uh, was a, a, a brilliant Australian journalist by the name of Mark Colvin who passed uh, last year, I think. But um, he was a brilliant, uh, well-respected ABC ha- hosted the flagship ABC radio news program like every day for you know twenty years. Probably the most trusted journalist in the. In the country, and I had him on the the podcast, and he also, you know described yeah you know, what he got from the Stoics and that you know way of approaching life. What was it about that that appealed to you? What was it that you said this is something that I respond to? I,
1: I think it's a, a, the fact that it has a combination of um, you being sort of in control of your actions and responsible for your actions, but at the same time accepting, you know, when things. You know, being able to cope when things go badly, and sort of accepting that as part of of, of life, rather than necessarily something to fight against or or rail against. So it's, uh, I guess, accepting that you know there are you know things that you can't control, but um, also that there are things that you, you can, and sort of knowing where, you know how to compartmentalize those various aspects of of existence. I think it's a pretty healthy philosophy. General, particularly in a sort of increasingly hectic world where things can get you know just slightly overwhelming on a logistical basis then um I think stoicism from uh, you know sort of over two thousand years ago has got some fairly basic lessons that don't change
0: how how many different ones did you do in
1: this uh three so I did stoicism, epicureanism, and cynicism, <laughs> and there's a lot of overlap between them sure um Particularly stoicism and Epicureanism, Um, and and obviously you know stoicism sort of influenced the way that uh, European culture and 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 British culture evolved over hundreds of years and influenced Christianity, which obviously suffused through through Europe. Um, So yeah, there's I guess an an unbroken line going going back to those uh, sort of early. Thoughts and ways of life, uh, right back to you know, classical Greece, where the, these ideas emerged um, or were crystallised. So, um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, Stoicism was the one that that most appealed.
0: Did you? Um, it's interesting to me when you just like you know actually do a little bit of further digging into something like that. Uh, were th- were there ways that you not only said this is you know I recognise this kind of fits the, you know the person who I am, but were there things that you learnt yeah you know, in that journey of discovery that have kind of changed the person that you are since? Like when you do a project like that, is it about yeah. I guess going? I fit into this category. You've essentially done the equivalent of the, you know, which Game of Thrones character am I it, on Facebook? Have you I been data mined during this experiment? <laughs> I think it was
1: it was more that, to be honest, it was a radio series, which and radio comes with certain budgetary, budgetary constraints. It wasn't like I could devote myself to it for three months in a in a jungle or whatever. So, um, right. um, yeah, it was it was more. I think um, I guess confirming. Uh, uh, ideas. What I, what I, uh, one of the things I really liked about it, and just the whole ancient attitude towards philosophy in general was how it was a, a fairly active thing about the way you live your life rather than a rather sort of dry intellectual exercise. It was very practical, essentially a, a you know almost handbooks for how to how to live and how to deal with uh, the ups and downs of of human existence. Right, and,
0: but well, that's I mean. You know, I think there is still a modern-day thirst for that, right? Yeah. But it's just been filled with, you know, self-help books and, you know, pop psychology podcasts like this. I'm yeah, wondering. yeah.
1: Well, I guess Stoicism is, is essentially self-help um, uh, from, uh, you know, 300 self-help. BC. That's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Change the things you can change and accept the things you can't change. That's ba- basically, Yeah. we I mean,
1: have stretched that out for 200 pages, you can sell it as a book. <laughs>
0: Uh as a comedian how does that you know influence your approach to comedy like or how is that reflective in your approach to comedy
1: um well i guess it's uh in, in comedy um stand up i see it, it quite similar in a lot of ways to to sport in that you know there's there's certain variables and uh you know your your performance might vary or the reaction might vary it's not you know, it's kind of sometimes hard to tell which is which, um, so I guess it helps you deal with you know when shows go badly or not as well as you wanted, uh, not to get you know to be able to analyse that objectively, and when things go really well, you should be able to see that it doesn't necessarily mean you are a, <laughs> a comic genius waiting to be discovered by the universe. So it's um, uh, I think pretty healthy in dealing with the uh, the ups and downs of. Of a, a job like uh, job like stand up. Can I call it a job? It never feels like a job.
0: Yeah, but I mean, I, I guess you know, playing cricket for a living probably doesn't feel like a job until it feels like a job. Yes, and you know, there are a job plenty of st- times doing stand, stand right. up where you know you're doing the comedy equivalent of you know a fifth day wicket in India. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, well, I, I, the conditions are against <laughs> you.
1: I, I um when I was particularly when I was start, starting out doing a lot of club gigs, you do like a you know, twenty minute set. And it, you know things would go you know variously well or or badly. I tended to see gigs in terms of the opening session of a test match, um, and uh, you know you might if it's gone really well you'd be you know, 100, 120 for one or whatever. And the ball's flying all over the place. Other times it'd be nipping around. And you have to just you know play it calm early on. Maybe lose a couple of wickets and then rebuild. But then of course there's gigs when you're forty three for eight at lunch. Or, <laughs> You know, England twenty-seven for nine in New Zealand. And um.
0: uh, what about performative state? Uh, Steve Waugh, who you'll be familiar with, yeah. and I'm sure many of the people listening will be familiar with, was the former captain of the Australian cricket team and uh, a, a real hero of mine. A man who uh, some people already know this story. Andy, sadly, because <laughs> when you hear this story, you'll be assur- you'll be like, you've already told people this story. All oh, right. Okay. Uh, he once uh, came into the radio studio where uh, we were interviewing him, and when he left. Uh, he would left half a, a cup of tea, and I drank the rest of his tea. Right. That's a that's, <laughs> anyway. It was a touching <laughs> vignette.
1: Did it imbue you with superpowers of uh, for for batting or?
0: So, it's funny you should uh, say that in right. because uh, I asked him something that I actually have taken into my when I think about doing comedy. Right. So I asked him a question about facing the great Western Indian bowlers. You know, you're facing these the fastest guys in the world bowling at speeds where it's in, incomprehensible over 22 yards that you can decide <laughs> I'm going to play a cover drive or a hook shot or whatever. And yeah. I, I just asked him that. And I said, you know, how, how do you know which shot to play? How can you tell in those conditions what to do? And he said, well, you know, you practice as much as you possibly can. You do it as much as you can. And then you hope in the moment that you get out of your own way and let your yeah, instincts yeah. kick in. So I'm interested to hear from you. Like there's probably a point in a tour when you've been doing a show enough that you can do that. You can walk out on stage and l- just play. Yes. But, but early on when you're putting together a show, you're still in a different mode to that.
1: Yes? Uh, yeah, I think um, it's almost the the other way around for me a bit. Right. That That um, when you have a... If you're doing a show that's sort of fa- fairly tightly scripted and doesn't vary that much, then you sort of con- control it more. When there's improvisational elements, that to me is more like sport where it's a mixture of preparation and kind of trained skills and reacting in the moment so um and you know I've not, I've, I've never been a particularly improvisational stand up and I always tended to stick very closely to what I'd written then a few years ago I started doing a show called satirist for hire where people email me in in advance with topics they want talked about and then I take orders from the audience at the start of the show. And that's, it's not, you know, it's not full improvisation but at the same time it is reacting using kind of trained instincts which I think is very similar to sport in general but particularly batting. So with having been born, well, having grown up as an obsessive cricket fan but trapped not in the body of an elite sports player... (laughs) That was the closest I could get. It's almost like I've, I managed to find, kind of accidentally construct a cricket show, uh, so a stand-up <laughs> show that was the closest I could get to recreating um, being a professional cricketer, <laughs> which sadly nature prevented me from being.
0: What is your inspiration when you start putting together a show? Because I'm always interested in talking to someone at the start of a show, because much like life, we reframe things through the experience that we're <laughs> having right now, right? Yes, yeah. You know, so like three months from now or six months from now, if I asked you what your show was like at the start, you you'll give me a very different answer probably to the answer that you're going to give me right now about right. where your show is. Like, where's your mind at? Is it is it an exciting thing to you? Is it a scary thing to you? Is it a thing that you're working on every day? Like, is like how, do, how does that work at the start of putting something at together? At
1: the start of a run, um, well, a mixture of, yeah, excitement and panic, I guess, um... Uh, slight elements of fear, inevitably, and <laughs> um, uh, the human instinct not to embrace failure unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and I tend to work fairly tight to deadlines from from doing the uh, the Bugle podcast. I'm sort of writing through the year, and then I will sometimes adapt things I've written in the Bugle, sometimes just take new ideas, and then try and put them into a show. And I might have a vague idea of what's w- w- kind of what I want the show to end as. Uh, th- sort of thematically, if I wanted to have an, an argument, um, and generally it just ends up being the funniest bits with a bit of structure plastered on top, rather roughly. But um, uh, I'd love to be slightly more of a perfectionist than that. But uh, it uh, it tends to sort of evolve, and bits fall off rapidly, and then come back. and um, I'm not sure I ever quite finish finish these things. But um, uh, well,
0: I don't. I like th- that because I do think that there's something about the the idea of comedy being complete. Yeah, yeah. That is, is an alien concept to me. Mm. Like, you know, even a bit where... I mean, we've all... Every you know comedian can tell you a story of like, you know, where they've finally got some TV spot for some bit or they've recorded their album or they've done whatever. And then the next night they roll out that bit at a club and come up with like a better joke or a better yeah, yeah or yeah, understand yeah. it better. Yeah, yeah. Like the idea that it's never quite done. Like, I mean, it... Sometimes you yeah, know jokes feel a bit like know yeah, that car your dad had in the garage that he just tinkered with other weekends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't seem to be any grand <laughs> objective that it would work at some stage, but yeah. he would just kind of fine tune it a little Yeah, can't would, quite let it go. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah, I think that's uh Yeah, I think that's I mean, that's I think it's probably quite a healthy attitude to I mean there's always things that can be things that can be improved. And uh sometimes oh, find on you know, TV or radio shows on a re- recording day if people aren't continually tinkering with the script right until the moment of broadcast I get slightly suspicious thinking you must have missed something right. there's always things that can be better so I, you know, during the process of doing a run at a festival I, I always I consciously try to put in a new joke every day and uh, which just helps to keep it fresh if so there's always a bit of the show that you're looking forward to in, in the first week there's a, you know a lot of tinkering to sort of get the show to some form of Almost finishedness, right. but then I, to, just to keep, you know, ha- adding bits to it. And what what can be really frustrating is then if you come up with a great joke on the last day, right. you think oh, that's really annoying. But um,
0: uh, but I guess some, in- at some stage I'm going to get to the point where I'm going to collect everybody's names and numbers. <laughs> and if the joke is good enough that I come out on the last day, I might not call them individually, but I might call them, yeah, you know, yeah. election style. <laughs> just record that one bit and sort yeah, of yeah. you know make it available to them.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a yeah, really nice way of doing it. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah uh so so w- what is it that you are trying to achieve when you decide that you're going to you know do a show like what are the motivating factors that say to you i am like you know i'm gonna you know book the festival i'm gonna you know have this run here i'm gonna you know go off and and do this aspect of what it is that i do
1: um well i'm not sure i particularly have a sort of grand plan for these things um i mean on a practical level it's you know it's it's uh, it's my job if I may use that word i've discussed um and just as you say you know the, the, with doing something creative like stand up comedy you want to keep keep creating and um you know keep trying to find new ways of of uh of making people laugh and challenging yourself to do different different things and um yeah obviously there's a a danger in stand-up. you sort of fall into um th- things that work and get almost too settled in that i think that probably happens to every comedian during their careers at some point um but i i guess it's just i, I just love doing it and as you know stand up is, is an it's almost an addiction at, at times and the, uh, the process of uh, you know starting with a blank sheet of paper and ending up with you know hopefully a show that can make people laugh for an hour and Sometimes intermittently think as well um, uh, it's uh, it, I just sort of love it in itself really. i don 't really have um, the style a motive of- beyond that I, yeah. I would say that I, I guess you want to sort of keep improving and developing as a as a comedian I mean doing people say with you know ask me doing you know satirical comedy or topical comedy when well, you're you're not going to change anything, you're not going to affect the world but that 's not really what, what it's about within live. Live stand-up clearly, you're not going to affect great social change talking to uh, a handful of people in a room during a festival. Given that uh, the nature of stand-up is such that those people generally already agree with you anyway, but <laughs> th- 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 there is a sense that it, 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 there's also an element of, of training within that. That if you uh, you know do that for a long time, if you then end up getting a, you know, a break in television or whatever, then you have you've honed the skills. To succeed, and and John Oliver, my old partner on the Bugle, I think the, one of the reasons he's been so successful from the moment he went to America is because for six seven years before that he'd been doing um, increasingly political stand up in in Britain. So he went there with sort of honed skills that could then be be developed. And um, yeah, honed
0: skills, uh, you know, a, a, a reasonable base of expertise. Yeah. you know, some some sense of you know, history and patterns and those sort of things that help you differentiate, you know, that world a little. Yeah. So then if you are in that world, which you are, and you have chosen to be on purpose, um, what was it that drew you to, because I loved what you said a minute ago, which was that thing. Cause I often when I, I don't always talk about politics, but you know, it's, it can form a reasonable chunk of, you know, my material from, you know, time to time. And, um, you know, the thing people always say is like, you know, well, you know, you're not going to change anything, are you? And I was like, oh, look, I, I was doing stuff about marriage equality for 18 years. So yeah. <laughs> I'm fully aware of how little power I have to, yeah. to change anything. You know, uh, but so then why is it that you like exploring those things? What was it that made you think this is the area where I want to comedically play? Um, Well,
1: I think it was... Th- that was the comedy that I'd always liked most before I started doing so comedy myself. So tell me myself.
0: about who that was. Um, what was influencing you?
1: Uh, well, I particularly loved Chris Morris's stuff and Armando Inucci's stuff in, uh, um, on television in, in Britain, particularly The, the Day Today, and then, and then Brass Eye. Um, and I, oh, I studied ancient Greek comedy at school and university as part of my degree, and that was deeply political and... Um, I found it. I mean, it's quite odd to have a. Like, people often ask, "Who's your comedy hero?" Yeah. And essentially, my comedy hero is Aristophanes, who right. lived <laughs> in uh, you know, the sort of late fifth century BC. But he did this. He wrote these amazing comic plays that were ranged from you know really acerbic political satire, and the political situation in Athens at the time was you know mostly on a war footing with. Uh, uh, Sparta the neighboring you know rival city-state over several decades so it was there was a lot of war there was you know it was a immer- you know democracy at the sort of hot brief height of its uh, uh early experiments and um uh so it ranged from you know political satire then there was a lot of literary parody um you know, quite in-depth literary parody but then you'd have slapstick puns and jokes about farts and sex I mean it, it's kind of total comedy and it because it was it was um performed in front of uh essentially the entire male population uh, of Athens ranging from the highly educated political elite to uh illiterate uneducated working class so it had to appeal to this vast spectrum and it, it's an uh incredible um sort of explosion of um yeah, I'd say total comedy that it had to work on pretty much every level and also as a as a visual spectacle as well.
0: I mean, it's amazing that you say that because if you listen to the bugle in particular, you can literally see that gamut. you know right, you are yeah. going from you know high culture references to <laughs> you know to yeah you know, on the spot political satire to, you know, everyone who listens knows that, you know, there's never been a pun you've met that you have not enjoyed. <laughs> like, but I'm the same. Yeah, Like, I am one of those people that often, you know, people will be like, yeah, we like the political stuff, but what was all that, you know, the the knob joke or the yeah, yeah. horrible pun work? And I was like, no, 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 no. This is all of it. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is, it all comes together as part of it. And that's interesting to me, like, the, the love of it all. So you don't necessarily, you're not certainly one of those people who, you know, has a snide attitude of like. Sometimes, if someone's into one particular type of comedy, they look down their nose at other types of comedy. You have a broader palette or collection yes, of things. Yeah,
1: that... Uh, yeah, I think so. And um and also with, I mean, of my, with political comedy, uh there's a danger that it's not quite funny enough, right, uh, or not at all funny <laughs> enough, um, or so, not at all funny. Yeah, it's so I've think, always. Wait, sorry, sorry. You know, be conscious that you need to make it funny first, right. particularly in stand-up, because as you say, you're not attempting to bring down the government <laughs> through live stand-up in a dingy room above a pub. So, um, so it has to be funny. I mean, my audience has not always agreed with that, uh, <laughs> and it's not—I've not I've always achieved it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I guess within political comedy, there's—you know—you can present things in you know you use absurdism uh, and there's obviously a lot of sort of you know parallel the comedy of sort of parallel situations and um, um but there's different ways that you can take a political issue and make comedy about it that has some satirical content but that it is fundamentally ridiculous and funny
0: what i have i really enjoy about your comedy is that there often feels like there's stuff that you know, like The Simpsons was at its best. Uh, you know, well, when, I'll put that on my poster. <laughs> yeah. But you know, there's jokes that you're not quite getting, right? But they're not getting in the way of the jokes that you're getting. Uh, yeah, yes, so yeah. You, you're enjoying sometimes, you know, a reference to something that the audience doesn't understand, or a joke about something that like can be alienating to the person in the audience who doesn't understand that. Whereas, like, often with your shows, I think, well, I didn't quite get that one, right, or I didn't like... But it, there's something about the way that it's put together that there's enough for every bit that you don't need to... I mean, you don't have to hit every beat of it. There's, no, yes. Does that make sense? Um, Is that a weird thing for me to say? No, I think
1: that's... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm always con- <laughs> conscious that... Uh, you don't want, you never want to have a joke that excludes people who don't know about a certain topic. So, you know, say if I'm doing... Um, you know, a joke about cricket in a show, I'll try and do it, you know, if it's not a specific cricket show or a cricket audience, in a way that it works for people who don't like or don't care about cricket, uh, people whom we can only pity with, I mean, from the depths of, of our hearts. Um, <laughs> I mean,
0: I feel like they're the one group who <laughs> do not deserve to be entertained by you. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: yeah, I should have a little en- entry form <laughs> for <the> a <laughs> little quiz on the way in. Um, so uh, yeah, like I said, the, the the you know prime goal is to make people laugh, and then you know anything that gets in the way of that, whether it's a, a reference that's too obscure. I mean, you can use the most obscure reference, but if the, the you can make the joke still work right. with that. If the say. framework of the joke yeah.
0: is working, yeah, the actual wording at the end of it, it doesn't necessarily yes. depend on that person knowing yeah. that reference to that philosopher or that yeah. you know. And also, of time. I guess
1: in the, in the particularly the age of the internet with Wikipedia, it's almost been the death of the smart ass. because now everyone can look things up. And I I think that's quite democratising. But there's there's
0: another element of your work, again, which then goes into this idea of the new world of the internet, where, I mean, we often hear, you know, it's the cliché of times, you know, the the age of misinformation. You know, you can find anything to support anything you believe. You know, fake news, alternative facts. But you're liberal with sprinkling amongst, you know, <laughs> the real stuff, some, some other stuff too. Yes. Like playing with the form of what is true and what is not true. Yes. And what the audience's understanding of what is true and what is not yes. true. Yes.
1: Well, generally, if I'm saying it, it's probably not true. Yeah. <laughs> rule for life. So, um, uh, and again, there's a lot of comedy in things that could be true right. but aren't, or, and things that are true that shouldn't be. So... Um, <laughs> So I guess you're yeah, constantly sort of playing with... Uh,
0: but mixing with those up, yeah. I mean, you do... Well, you,
1: yeah, you want almost to create... I mean, a lot of comedy comes from, well, sort of a sense of confusion right. in a way. So if you can sort of create that and then tweak it, then uh, it can be quite comedically... Yeah, fruitful. I mean,
0: there's that old... I mean, it's over-simplistic. There is no sort of rule to these things. But, yeah, I think it was the Pythons who originally said it and Eddie Izzard who quoted it a lot in interviews. But, yeah, that idea of take yeah, t- treating something serious, yeah, ridiculously, or treating something ridiculous seriously. You yes, know, a lot of it does fall into those areas.
1: Yes, and well, going back to Aristophanes, he had a um, in in one of his plays. He said, essentially, I can't remember the exact wording, and it would have been in Greek anyway. Mm. Um, uh, so I'd have had to uh, check the translation. E- even a as lot a student, of, a lot of it was very Russian. <laughs> but um, um, he said that. Uh, yeah, the, the the voice of the comedian was such that you could say things much more directly to people th- through comedy in a way that you know they wouldn't necessarily listen to politicians or almost serious artists say it. And then uh, Reginald D. Hunter said um, yeah, something almost exact, you know, almost direct paraphrase of that, and he said, uh, "You can't trust your I again, I can't quite remember the exact wording, but it was basically, you can't trust your politicians, your religious leaders, whatever. You're, the only people." Uh, you can believe it, uh, comedians, and the only reason you believe us is because you think we're bullshitting. So it's essentially the <laughs> the same the same philosophy, what? you know, from throughout the history of.
0: Uh, what of do you comedy. think then, when you know we now live in this world, and this has been happening for a yeah. long time? You know, uh, you know, they started talking about this, uh, you know, around the sort of. John Stewart daily show era where more, you know, uh, college kids were getting their news from, you know, Tonight shows and The Daily Show than they were from, you know, your major news outlets. And then suddenly, you know, you did The Bugle with John, and he's had such great success with his show. But he's now a person who, you know, and not of his uh, courting, but, you know, he's a person now who's become, you know, almost this like, you know, respected voice of... Yes. Yeah, on a different level. Yeah. I mean, you know, not a comedian first and foremost which i think is the you know secret to what he is able to do you know he's able to talk about all these things that people ordinarily wouldn't have wanted to see on television but with that comes this idea that somehow i don't know his words have more value or this what this where do you feel i'm not really specifically talking about him either just yeah. the idea of the comedian's voice being seen as more serious than that idea that it's ridiculous well i think it's the
1: sense that a, a comedian has an independent voice, and I, I think in America, with the the way the news media works, it is not always politically or commercially independent. Um, I don't think I'm going out on a limb when I say that. I mean, <laughs> so, um, I
0: have to obviously, I don't normally edit the podcast, Andy. <laughs> so, but,
1: um, uh, yeah, so the uh, so if you if you come at something with independence. As you know the comedic standpoint is And ideally political comedy should attack all aspects of the political spectrum then you almost sort of get an inverse authority um, and um so I, th- I think that's you know where with 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 john Stuart's as you know he was it was essentially news but not owned if you see what I mean so it had a it, people turned to it for for that and also it, and comedy's just a, a a very yeah. You know, if you can package a, a, an unpleasant story uh, in a way that's entertaining, that's, that can be really quite powerful, I think. So, um, so I, guess, I
0: guess what I wanted to ask you about off that is this idea of how do you feel about... It feels to me that you couldn't do what you do without some interest and perhaps at least at some stage some love of news. But yes. how, how would you describe your relationship with news as news is now?
1: Right. Um, that's an interesting question. Uh, I don't know. I find in- I'm increasingly intolerant of it. Uh, I I found um, uh, TV news often aggravating. I tend to get it more from reading stuff on the internet now, and I try to sort of read from as many different sources as possible. And and it is kind of impossible to to kind of get down to. We just. It, in an ideal world, there would just be one source of news in the world, and it would right. all be fact. It would all be true, and you could rely on it. But clearly, that <laughs> isn't the last time they tried that. It was uh, essentially the birth of organised religion, and that has had a checkered history at best. So, um, <laughs> all right, two minutes.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're going to start melding yeah. all these controversial opinions, yeah. <laughs> and
1: also, I, fi- I find you know, if I'll, I'll read something on, uh, you say, the Guardian, and I'll read something on the, yeah, you know, the. Uh, Daily Telegraph in, uh, in, in Britain and completely different views, and I, I I I just find myself getting increasingly confused about about everything. Which may maybe why I resort to sport and bullshit, which I guess are two branches of the same form of um, escaping.
0: But how do reality. you funnel like the state of the world through? Like I get how you funnel it through your comedy, yeah. But you're also a man, you know. Yes. You're also Like, yeah, external to being a comedian or a podcaster or, you know, a writer, any of these things, you're also a man, you know, you're a person living in the world. Yeah. So how does, I mean, I, I, the thing that I sometimes, like my girlfriend does not watch the news, has never watched the news. And as a person like myself who will read, you know, I used to be a journalist and like, you know, would read five or six newspapers like in the morning and then spend all day online consuming as much information as I possibly could. And I would always be like, "How can you not, you know, read the news?" And she goes, "Well, if anything really important happens, I'll find out." about <laughs> it. And I'm like, but, "But how?" And she goes, "Well, firstly, you'll tell me." <laughs> and I was like, "Well, that's yeah. that is true, but yeah. but you know, is there there can be a depressive nature to knowing too much that like yes, and that, is that a valid thing to say?
1: Yeah, it is, and uh, well, I mean, particularly as uh, well, a lot of news inevitably focuses on uh, bad things, whether it's uh, kind of massive global catastrophes and stories like like Syria. But also just, you know, a lot of news, you know, there's people dying in unusual ways and um, random forms of human suffering. And uh, so it can get, um, yeah, it's it, it can be fairly overwhelming, I guess, but, well, it's just sort of the nature of... Of the world, you sort of find ways of balancing it out um, through the non new stuff you consume, and, and like I say, that's where the, the, the escapisms of of sport or Game of Thrones or computer games comes in, I guess. But uh,
0: have you always been a balance, a person who has you know, been able to find that balance, or is that something that you've developed?
1: I think. Um, I'm not sure I've entirely found. I think I'm sort of go too far to the. I've always been obsessed with sports since my earliest conscious days. From about the age of six, I remember just being, and so I've always had that. I uh, will, you know, always read the newspaper from the sports pages backwards, or well, I'll miss out the business bit in the middle, but it's the. Uh, so I, I guess that's how I um, dilute reality. <laughs>
0: What is it that, so you still have the same passion for sport now that you did? Like, is it, because I'm interested in that because what I've noticed is that I used to be, when I had uh, time to fill in my life, Yeah, you know, I had these great dreams of, you know, like pursuing all these different sports, not just as an athlete myself, but like later on when that turned out, that wasn't going to be the case. You know, I you know, I had these great dreams in my 20s that I would go and watch Australia play test cricket in every country where they play test cricket. Right. And yeah, then yeah. I would, you know, go and visit this sporting event. And I would, you know, go through a season of the AFL, which is the sport I enjoy the most. Yeah. And um, I would go and see my team play every weekend, no matter where they'll put, you know, all these things. And then as life gets, you know, uh, more busy and more complicated, you know, I've noticed that. It turns out basketball isn't as high on my agenda <laughs> as I once thought yeah. that, that it was, for yeah. example. like you know, What priority does sport ha- still have in your life and, and what has kept you interested in it?
1: Uh, well, I guess what's kept me interested in it is the... Uh, you know, it's just a, a sort of constant creation of drama and narrative. So, you know, there's a human obsession with, with narrative... In many forms, from you know books and plays and films, and you know sport is the one that has always attracted me the most. Um, in terms of my interest in sport, um, well, with with cricket, I mean that was, I guess, all a kind of lifelong obsession, and I started sort of writing about it. Um, sort of, you know, I don't know, professionally is the wrong word, but in in exchange for money, so it almost became part of my the, the job. Uh, <laughs> um, about uh, what, ten years ago now, so that almost sort of quite rekindle my obsession with cricket because it was always there but it sort of meant that I spent more gave time gave you an excuse gave to me an be excuse able to s- indulge your just obsession spend days on the internet looking up statistics yeah. um, you're talking
0: to somebody who has an AFL football podcast there uh, is no reason to exist <laughs> other than to you know, make sure that I can watch a few extra games of football yeah. on the weekend
1: Um, uh, but then my in, uh, I found I've got interested in sort of other sports for a little while or uh, we watch our local ice hockey team in London. I think I'm quite obsessed just with the extraordinary uh, visual spectacle of ice hockey. I don't really understand the tactics, but it's a, it's an, a mixture of violence, speed, cunning. Um, it's almost it's the sport that seems to require the, the, mo- the widest range of skills. to be I mean, good at. Well, We just watch our local amateur ice hockey team. We play in the second well, level. Well, I love it because football.
0: I have spent a bit of time living in LA and I, we would go and watch the the Kings yeah. uh play and i can't really watch it on the television but like yeah. live live it's amazing it's yeah amazing yeah because a lot of them are like six foot eight for a start yeah. secondly they've got like hockey sticks <laughs> thirdly at some stages you can just punch each other like and they are all skating around like figure skaters with deadly weapons on their feet, yeah. and that's the game yeah and it never stops and people just roll in and out. Oh, and there's a barrier that they can just smash each other yeah. into.
1: It's an extraordinary sport. Um
0: the, the combination of things that you need to know how yeah. to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a ridiculous um, <laughs> and totally captain. But I don't really, you know, I don't follow the right. NHL, but I'd love watching it. Um, and yeah, um, uh, you know, so I'd, I'd love. Okay, I got really into the Olympics. and went to about thirty different things at the Olympics in London, and um, I just. Uh, loved it uh, what i what I find with uh, I, I've increasingly don't care who wins in sport uh, particularly on a national level so with with cricket I grew up watching England in the 80s and we lost two countries that essentially didn't exist I'm sure they were made-up countries we lost a Lusitania at one point and uh, in a test series and um, um, uh, so I just kind of learned to love love cricket and I find this the jingoism and uh, sort of overt patriotism of a lot of sports sports coverage. I don't know, it's been particularly uh, prominent during the Commonwealth Games here in Australia. I find that slightly tiresome. And that, you, um,
0: feel, you found the Australian coverage of the Commonwealth Games <laughs> to be slightly jingoistic. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think in times gone by, we would have slightly laughed at it in Britain. But if you watch the British coverage of the Olympics, it is essentially just as just the same. Um, and I fundamentally, I don't really care uh, increasingly also, where... Also,
0: I, I mean, I, I imagine, by the way, the, the Australian coverage of the Commonwealth Games if the Commonwealth Games were on the moon and Australia was not doing well, it would still be a jingoistic coverage. (laughs) But the fact that it is in Australia, it's coming off some bad sporting times for this country. We're leaning in pretty hard to the fact that we won 28 gold medals in the swimming pool at the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Turns out we've got a lot of renewed interest in lawn bowls now that we're (laughs) a shot for the gold. Well, I
1: guess the the legacy of the the British Empire has... uh... We won't say sorry, but we will give everyone a sports day.
0: Um, um. <laughs> um, as a a brick coming to Australia to work, um, and you know you've now done it, you know a bit, and you've worked you're alongside Australians as well. What uh, this is certainly not one of those, uh, you know, what's the difference between the you know British and Australian sense of humour questions. Uh, but I, what aspects of what you see in Australian comedy, uh, do you think are a byproduct of the environment we're in versus the environment that the British are in? Does that make sense yeah, to you? Um, I'm
1: not... I, I think... I don't know if it's true, so there's there's less of a class obsession here, that, and I think that filters through the the comedy. There's, uh, I guess, there's, an, an honesty about... There is class in Australia, it, but,
0: but we, it is never spoken about. Right. It's certainly um, not that class, like, you know... We're still
1: obsessed with it in Britain in a way that I find baffling and tedious, Um, but it still informs a lot of uh, life. Um, I'm not not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I've seen quite enough of...
0: uh, Okay. Well, I'm going to reframe the question and ask you something that perhaps maybe is a little... Why is it that you have worked with Australians? You know, you found (laughs) yourselves... You found yourself working with a bunch of Australians and working with them really well. Alice Fraser's been doing the bugle a lot. Um, you know, Felicity Ward. Obviously, I mean, it makes sense. You were doing an Ashes podcast. You need know, an yeah. Australian, but you know, you seem to have a very comfortable rapport with Australians.
1: Yes, I don't know if that's specifically because they're Australians or um, that it just happened to be that the the ones I've. People I've worked with. I may be turning into
0: one of those. uh, There's a very famous example of uh, when Jerry Seinfeld first toured Australia. That he did a press conference as he got off the private plane at the airport, and one of the questions he got asked was, uh, "What do you think of Australia?" (laughs) 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 There is there is a little uh, thing about Australia that I think is like just tell. We yeah. frame all of your things through telling us about ourselves. Um, but I think particularly well, I th- when it comes to the British, yes, like lo- that we do have that sort of attitude of um, that we still have a sense of, you know, like we're torn between wanting our dad's approval and wanting to fight our dad. You yes. Know,
1: to- well, I guess there's just the, the history of our two countries means that there is instantly a relationship uh, between you know, a British comedian and an Australian comedian, almost just through shared history, and uh, and particularly as a sports fan, that's right. maybe maybe enhanced. Um, I also think in comedy, an outsider's perspective is always comedically rich, and I mean I think that's one of the reasons John's done so well in in America is he's able to look at America with an outsider's perspective. So if you have people from different uh, different countries, different hemispheres, then you sort of create that uh, kind of dynamic of different perspectives anyway. Um, no, I like but, that. That's
0: good because, I mean, you are a person who... I've always been interested in the way that you collaborate, you know, and particularly since John hasn't been doing the show, you know, you work with a whole... I hear you work constantly with a you know, quite a wide range of, you know, different people and perspectives and it's always interesting to me to think... Why is it, you know, Why this person? You know, right. like what yeah. was it? What was it about them that you know, you know? he sparks off so well, or that they bring to the table. But I think that that outside perspective is probably pretty familiar. Like you rarely have someone on the show who you would describe as a, you know. If we if we can't get Andy Zaltzman, we'll get an Andy Zaltzman type. <laughs> you know, you rarely have an Andy Zaltzman type on. You know? Yes,
1: I'm not sure there's much of a market for
0: Andy Zaltzman types. <laughs> What are your um, what are the things about yourself? I mean, I guess at at this stage as a performer, that you would love to work on. I don't don't want to say improve necessarily, but like you know, what are the aspects of who you are as like a you know a comedic performer that you feel like are the things that you want to be working on or playing around with? Well, challenging yourself with or
1: logistically, uh, I'd like to. Be better at meeting deadlines rather than smashing through them. Right. Um, and, you yeah, know, that sense that... We talked about the sense of never quite finishing anything. And I, I, I think that's quite healthy, but at the same time, there's ways of doing that and there's degrees right. of finishedness. Yeah, sometimes things
0: need to be finished. Yeah,
1: but perhaps, uh, well, definitely, I could improve my <laughs> skills at meeting deadlines and, uh, yeah, not procrastinating <laughs> quite as much as... Uh, as I do in terms of uh, as a performer um, I I mean there's always ways to improve I'd like to be sort of learn to be more instinctive on stage and uh, that's a a kind of gradual process that I think I've been working on for the last five years in particular and it's you know I think I'm getting better at it but you know I don't think I've ever been particularly confident comedically I I don't know If any comedians are, a lot of it is a a front. Uh, And, you know, know, I'll say to my wife after a gig, I was really nervous during that gig. I wasn't sure what I was doing. She said, Well, that didn't show. And you think, Well, maybe that's just part of the veneer that you learn to um, project over the years. Uh,
0: Do you get inside your own head in those moments? I mean, the thing about a festival in particular is it always reminds me of. Because if you're just doing shows, and particularly yeah. if you're traveling from place to place and all those sort of things, one-nighters, two-nighters, there's a kind of reset in the process of going from one place to the other that kind of stops your mind. Yeah, you're in a new room, there's these factors that you have to kind of get used to, so you're in the show a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like, you know, if you're 10 nights into a show in the same room, just by the very nature of it, your mind can wander. Yeah, Not necessarily yeah. does, but... It has the capacity to do that. Will, I, can, are you the sort of performer that can get inside your own head while you're on stage?
1: Uh, definitely, yes. I, mean, I, I don't know, having only been me, I don't know if that's true of all comedians. But No, there's,
0: please, Andy, speak for all comedians. <laughs>
1: there's, uh, you know, there's clearly moments in, in any show when you find yourself sort of thinking whilst talking. So you're you know, delivering the routine but thinking about something else or analysing your performance. And we take it back to sport. You hear sportsmen t- sports players talking about being in the zone where it becomes a sort of non-conscious process. And I, generally, you know, with, with comedy, you want to achieve that status of, of not thinking about what you're doing and it just sort of flowing out. But it's... Uh, when it kind of comes and goes, doesn't it? Um, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yes, Andy.
0: Yeah. Yes, it does. <laughs> Sadly. Um,
1: yeah. So uh, I, keep, I keep turning it back to sport, but yeah, you want to sort of get it into that. So, so during the, taking back to doing, a, you know, a long run at a festival, um I think that's one of the reasons I, I try try to keep putting new bits in, so that you don't you avoid that that staleness. And I think you know, even in a show that you've done fifty times, you can find ways of of tweaking it, whether it's changing the order or putting a whole new new chunk in, or, or uh, yeah, just you know, even little tweaks of delivery within old routines can can enliven something.
0: Uh, we should finish up soon, but I, there's a couple of questions I'd like to ask uh, before we finish. Uh, yep. Death uh, right. is it something that you, you are you know conscious of? Like, is it something <laughs> that you know like you know informs you in some way? Do you have thoughts about what happens, you know, upon yeah. Upon
1: death, upon death, um, what de- comedic death or
0: actual human death? Actual human death. Actual human death.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, I guess I think. Uh, think think about it. Every now and again, it being slightly unavoidable. But um, I think that Stoicism has healthy attitudes towards death. You know, it's something that uh, you know it happens, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it seems uh, kind of pointless to. Worry about it, obviously, yeah. having. There's something,
0: there's things that you can worry about to influence when it may or may not happen. Yes. But in the broader scheme of that, it is yes. going to happen. What
1: What I think more about is um, elongated life. Right. <laughs> the, that that we, we, as a society, and um, yeah, with, with the nature of medical science, we're yeah. living longer and longer and. Uh, We can't afford it. We've seen that economically across the world, Uh, and it is a a major issue for humanity. That we living, we sort of seem to be asking, how can we live longer and longer, and not why are we bothering to do it? And you know, what is what is the purpose? What are we? What are all these hundred-year-olds going to be doing in fifty or or sixty years? I think about that a lot. I think about you know my my children. I have two children who are eleven and nine now, and I sometimes find myself thinking, what. What what is their their generation's life going to be like when they're 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 old and you know that's the sort of ageing world and not enough to do and I that 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 worries me a lot. I find myself more worrying about being very old and uh, well, particularly not having um, you know, as long as I have access to enough televised sport, I think I'll be okay. But uh, <laughs> just on a global level, this seems to be a
0: Social time
1: bomb that we are essentially ignoring. So I worry oh, about that ab- more than death.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I this is. I mean, I joke about it sometimes. But you know, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have planned better. You know, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I was talking to my doctor the other day about a bad back issue I had last year, and he just basically was saying to me, "Yeah, you're 44. Yeah, you're out of warranty. You're no <laughs> original parts. You yeah, weren't yeah. meant to live this long and stand up this long. This is like." all borrow time from now on, basically, in the way yeah. that we were designed. And we now have this new class of people who are thinking about the concept of living forever. Yeah. You know, the the ultra-rich, you know, these people who have these stupid amounts of money now, they're, they're doing a lot of research into what that next step of our, you know, world will be where you don't have to die. Yes. Or See, that you, have, you can live yeah. on in some way, elongate your life in some way that is... You know far beyond what we imagine right now
1: that that seems to be a problem that we do not need to solve that right. uh, you know we should be focusing more on uh you know people who who are living having yeah. a better time rather than mm-hmm. people who are having a great time having a great time for hundreds of years long right <laughs> <Whatever>. <laughs> so um yeah and, and it's very, it's hard to see how it's all going to we ought you know kind of care crises around the world in in western countries and how you know, we live went since you know, state pensions came in when you know, the life expectancy was 70 or something the whole the whole thing is just it, it, the maths doesn't work and just imagining what 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 is everyone going to be doing i don't know i'm less just have virtual reality head virtual reality could be the savior of humanity if just a virtual reality headset for everyone in the world and you know kids of my generation can put it on and you know have, have a virtual reality in which they own their own home and have a rewarding career, things like that. Um, And, uh, you know...
0: (laughs) Where it's it's not as hot outside as that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's where they're not underwater. And um, maybe that'll be the way for... That'll be the future of uh, nursing homes in the future. Just just loads of people sitting around with virtual reality headsets on, Uh, living as if they're young again.
0: I can imagine uh, you being happy with the scenario of just, you know... Can't cheat. Like like I, I think you'd be a bit like me, where you'd just be like, you know what? Even if there's not something on, if I can access like the 1980s, you know, blah blah series, I'm happy to give that another. Yeah, that's as long good. as now that I've got nothing else to do, if yeah. this is what I'm doing.
1: But also, I guess your your memory fades, so right. um, yeah, all, oh, all so you really need is just it. play ball by ball test matches from the 1980s.
0: I mean, I'm going to stick be, me in a nursing I am home now. I'm amazed by that Shane Warne ball of the century. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that spun right around his entire body. Yeah. I feel like this is really going to shatter them for at least two decades. Um, What disappoints you the most about sport? Like, what is it that you see as sport's worst traits, the things that you don't enjoy? Uh,
1: Well, I I don't... Oh, we've talked about how it's supposed to be an escapism from uh, reality. So when you have the same sort of excesses of... uh, um, sort of capitalism and inequality in sport. Uh, I, I find that kind of depressing. And we see it particularly in, in in football, and I mean, real football, not your crazy sleeveless version. Yeah. Here. Uh, the massive concentration of
0: wealth at the top. Which the essentially, yeah, the English yes. Premier League and the, all the European yeah. leagues, where essentially they're all paying. You know, the people who have the most money put together the best teams.
1: Um, yes, I find that. Uh, and you see, if we look at American sports. There's inbuilt structures to keep competition healthy, and I think you know, they're trying that in in 2020 cricket as well. Whereas, you know, cricket internationally has been, you know, there's been attempted power grabs by the the, the richest countries, and the way that you think, well, that, that it does not take much of a brain to realise that that is unhealthy for the game. The whole thing is dependent on uh, relatively fair competition, or at least an illusion of fairness. Um, so that that uh, I find you know the 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 way that money can sort of skew sport in a way that it, you know it emerged from its amateur past, uh, where there was sort of you know it was almost a level playing field because there wasn't that much money involved and clearly it was never quite uh, you know, completely fair. But I think you know increasingly money has skewed sport and and given too much of an advantage to the to the rich on an international level and within. Club sports. Um, I worry about uh, sport becoming seen too much as entertainment, rather uh, <laughs> which uh-huh. it isn't, and it's it's often said, well, oh, you have to be entertaining. I think well, that's not. It is you know, it's drama rather than entertainment. I see the particularly well, as a cricket. It, it doesn't
0: all need to be you know, yeah that stuff like you know the, the entertainment
1: th- it comes from uh, I guess you know competition yeah. and. Know, this the sort of drama and the skills within it it's uh, uh i get annoyed when entertainment is sort of slapped on top of it um or seen as you know the purpose of of sport um so um which makes you sound like a, a grumpy old man and i guess sporting i you think maybe, you will perfectly
0: lean into being a
1: grumpy old man, <laughs> and i don't think that you will to regret
0: wait. a moment yeah of looking back on times and telling people how they were much better <laughs> than the times we're currently experiencing yeah um
1: <laughs> Yeah, they were much better in a time that never really existed.
0: Um, <laughs> hey, uh, Andy, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. Hey, um, tell people about your show. What's it called? Uh, it's on at the supper room at the Melbourne yes. Town Hall.
1: Uh, yes, so it's on um, until the 20, or 22nd? till the end of the, the Melbourne of the Comedy Festival. Festival, Festival. And um, then
0: you're doing some dates in Sydney?
1: Yes, so I'm, I'm doing... It's called Right Questions, Wrong Answers. So again, it's looking at the sort of impossibility of knowing anything basically now and understanding... Are completely baffling problems that are affecting us now and in the future. Um, uh, I've got two live bugles on the fifteenth and Sunday the fifteenth and Sunday the twenty second. Um, got Alice Fraser doing the fifteenth, Tom Ballard on the twenty second, David O'Doherty's also doing the fifteenth, um, and uh, yeah, two nights in Sydney on the twenty third and twenty fourth.
0: Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Time.